Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan Read the Paper, it is the special holiday edition. December 24th, also known as Christmas Eve, 2018. And we have a special guest. It is indeed Christmas Eve, and we are joined by one Sadie Abuhoff. Sadie Eleanor Abuhoff. Uh, our middle child. I have gone to uh, the South and collected her. That's true. And brought her back to Lineport. So we're going to talk a little bit about our recent experiences, uh, your visit to the National Gallery. Uh, we went to a uh, New York Times talk with Stephen Sondheim, which was great. We saw a movie, The Favorite. And then back to the holidays, we're going to talk a little bit about holiday movies and holiday music. So it's really all about the holidays. Well, the National Gallery, does that fit in that category? It's not the National Gallery. Oh, what you see, Daniel? Daniel. The National Portrait Gallery. Oh, I was the way off. Is, we did go to the National Gallery, too. Yes. But, but the difference is the National Gallery closes at 5, and the Portrait Gallery closes at I, 7. I stand corrected. Due to some conflicts, yeah. I got to Washington later than usual. Yes. And so I know that, uh, you know, some people choose what galleries they're going to based on things they want to see, but we were really focused on our timetable. All right. And so we needed to find uh, something in Washington that was open after five. And that was the and National Portrait Gallery. Sadie cleverly discovered that the Smithsonian American sure. Collection of Art, yeah, the Smithsonian American Museum of Art, and the National Portrait Gallery, which share the same neoclassical building that used to be the um, uh, patent office originally, um, are open till seven at this time of year. And so, bingo. First, we popped into the National Gallery, had a nice look around, uh, checked out some uh, Rubens, Rembrandts, uh, and uh, the Rotunda, mm -hmm. which is always festively decorated with uh, poinsettias and uh, trees and snowflakes. lights, giant snowflakes, uh, lots of fun stuff. So we enjoyed that, mm -hmm. um, although we did get a snarl. I got a snarl from the coat check guy uh, because I checked my bag at 4.30. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, we close at 5.00. If you're not back, it's going into lost and found. I, I gather you got back in time. We got back. We, we're good. All right. We're fast. So you enjoyed... Uh... National Portrait Gallery, spectacular. Really? Yes. First of all, it's a great building. Yeah. And uh, it, uh, the Smithsonian actually, I guess, renovated it uh, in the 60s. And uh, it opened in the late 60s. And it's... Uh, Really a lot of fun, and it's free, of course. So all I would these... say good gift shop. Excellent gift shop. I was impressed with the gift shop. And uh, Sadie and I focused on the presidents, well, the presidential doesn't? portraits. Who doesn't really? Did we, let me just say, did we say this is Washington, D.C.? Because maybe it's all assumed. It is in Washington, D.C. It's in Washington, yes. D.C.? Okay. Okay. Yeah. And um, Sadie loves presidents. I love paintings. Uh -huh. So it was a win-win. And we had a good time, didn't we? Roaming through those presidential portraits. Got little tidbits yeah. on the labels about uh, each of the presidents. Mm -hmm. And then when you get to the modern day um, portraits. It gets a little kooky. 
Well, I mean, you know, it's a it's a little more fun, I would say. They start commissioning yeah. random people to do the Not random the people, but actual artists, right. not just portrait. You know, there's uh, well, we, the famous JFK by Elaine de Kooning, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, the Chuck Close yeah, of Bill Clinton. Uh, Clinton. Oh, really? That's the, that's the official portrait of Clinton? Chuck Close's? Well, it's the not, the it's not official. I mean, it's official in the sense it's, uh, it's what um, the portrait collection commissioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be part of their collection, mm-hmm. and it has the new Obama one with the the leaves, the yeah, one that I've they've that. Yeah. shown a little bit. Right. Um, but we we overheard the there was someone was giving a tour when we were walking through, and she was talking about how they did when they decided they were going to do all the presidents, they had to collect presidential portraits from the past, and then moving forward, they commissioned them every year. And I think that was probably around I want to say like the Reagan period or something when they started to like. Mm-hmm proactively um, commissioned portraits. So they're getting more of a variety of uh, styles. Yeah. yeah. So so that was fun. It was fun mm-hmm. to look at all of those uh, from a historical viewpoint and from a art appreciation viewpoint. And then the um, American art collection that's part in the same building was also fun. Uh, we saw a lot of, uh, a big variety of media, actually. We saw stained glass. We saw some furniture. Um, we saw sculpture. So all very accessible and fun. And then we went downstairs. There's a courtyard mm-hmm. and it's covered. It's uh, been covered over so that it functions as an interior community space. And they were having a great jazz concert going on. Mm-hmm. And they had a little bar set up. They had a little station where they would also loan out board games and they had tables, so they had seating for the jazz, also tables for hanging out and just uh, playing board games or whatever. And it's a great space, beautifully landscaped, and uh, again, decorated for Christmas. So that was fun. National Portrait Gallery, open till 7. <laughs> All right. So on, well, that was late in the week. That was Thursday night. Tuesday night... <coughs> Uh, Tams and I went to, to a New York Times talk. We'd never done this. They have an auditorium in the Times office building on 8th Avenue in the low 40s. Uh, and the speaker was Stephen Sondheim. Uh, it was, they set it up as a conversation, in this case with a fellow named Anthony Tomasini, who's the uh, uh, classical music critic of the New York Times. And uh, Sondheim, uh, who's now 88 years old, spoke for an hour and a quarter uh, to an audience filled up pretty clearly with a bunch of uh, fervent fans. Uh, and Sondheim's just great. I mean, Sondheim's a fascinating, brilliant man, one of the great artists of the last know, 50 years, whatever you want to call it. Um, uh, and he's a brilliant speaker. He's very sharp. He's very precise. His writing, he has those two books, Finishing the Hat and Look, Mom, I Made a Hat, which I've been and reading. What? What's Look, Look Mom, I made, I made a Hat. No, I don't think it has mom in it. Oh, really? Look, I made a hat. I'm sorry. You got me. But yes, those both both those books are really his how-to books, as he describes it, about how to write a musical. And they're wonderfully written. Uh, and he's just a brilliant man. Uh, he spoke uh, as a takeoff point, because this was Tomasini's entry, into uh, about uh, musical theater and lending its uh, form to opera on the one hand and movies on the other, uh, Sweeney Todd. And Pacific Overtures have been made into an opera to some degree. In Sondheim's view, limited success because Sondheim does not like opera. The opera, as he put it, is for opera goers in opera houses. 
which he feels is somewhat limiting. Uh, movies, he was somewhat more open than I thought he might be. To uh, He liked the Sweeney Todd movie, I got the impression. Wasn't that your impression? Yeah. And they showed clips from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and well, which one did he describe as an operetta? Was that Sweeney Todd? Sweeney Todd. He, he felt okay. Sweeney Todd was flexible. He made a very interesting point about Sweeney Todd. That, again, who's the star of the... Um, Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp was in the Sweeney Todd movie. Uh, but he, well, also Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman, and they showed a clip. Yes, how Alan, dare the, the heart you throb. name Johnny Depp before Alan Rickman? <laughs> Alan Rickman, for those who aren't aware of this, is for a certain segment of the female population an incredible heartthrob. Sadly, he passed away a, year a certain ago. segment. Why right. are we limiting it? Okay, the entire segment. His voice, as much as anything else, I'd like to think. But in any event. Uh, they did play Alan Rickman. He he made the point of showing uh, an excellent actor can sing effectively, even though he's not a great singer, and that's what he did. Depp actually sang pretty well, but his point, um, uh, Sondheim's point, was that uh, he felt that the uh, play lent itself to a movie because a lot of it's about underscoring. He talked a lot about underscoring, which is mood music. In mm-hmm. movies, mm-hmm. and he felt that you can very effectively use the music and the themes in Sweeney Todd that way. Matter of fact, at one point he said he always thought of Sweeney Todd as a movie, strangely. Uh, but it's all because of the understoring point. So that was an interesting discussion. He talked about Into the Woods more briefly because that's more conventional. He just, in his mind, just opened it up a little bit, but it was very much like the play. And as he put it, his work was done when he wrote the music, and it was up to other men to put it together. Well, um, some of the things I thought were interesting uh, had to do with, uh, you know, talking a little bit about writing those books mm-hmm. and saying the the books worked because although he hasn't had a very interesting life, he said, yeah. it wouldn't be very interesting for him to write his memoirs right. about his life, but to write about his work, to write a sort of memoir of the story of his work um, and, you know, his insights into that. Uh, he has a lot to say, and it's true. And I would also notice that there are plenty of fascinating people who have done interesting things, who are geniuses, who are not necessarily interesting to listen to. Yeah. But uh, Sondheim is great to listen to. He's a very good uh, speaker on his feet with um, fun and fascinating uh, ways to look at uh, his work, his music, work in general, uh, music in general, etc. Yeah, he's great. And, 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 he's, and he's working on new projects. He talked about new things. He's working on a musical uh, based on a, two Ben Well movies, uh, which is kind of, we won't go into great depth. They're not done yet, but he's working on it, even though he's 88. Uh, well, when, um, when the, uh, what's his name, Tomasini? Yeah. Uh, introduced him. He made the point of saying, oh, this person and that person kept writing into their 70s well, I, I, or whatever. Um, so it's, you know, and here is Sondheim. He's 88. And Sondheim gets on stage and immediately says, you know, pe- some people like uh, George Bernard Shaw, who kept writing um, until he was 94, wrote their worst stuff right. in their old age. So, you know, basically saying it can be a little patronizing and say, oh, isn't it cute? He's still writing. Right. So he, yeah, so he says yeah, that so. he's, he's highly conscious of the fact that the work may not be great, but maybe it will be. And there are certain Sondheim things that are continue to be reworked. They talked about and showed a clip from a rehearsal of the new company production. And, and Sadie, you saw a company in New York, which mm-hmm. was excellent. 
Yeah, with Raul Esparza. Yeah. Yeah, the John Doyle production. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But there's one in London That's now right, I mean. where they have flipped the main character. The main character, Bobby, the guy who cannot uh, commit. commit to a relationship. settle down yeah. and get married, is now a woman, Bobby with an I-E. And uh, it's supposed to be uh, shockingly wonderful. Patty Lapone is in it. Right. Playing one of the married friends, right? No. No. Well, the sometimes married friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, sort of. I guess that's fair. That's fair, um, but not the main part, but 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 a, a, a significant part. And they also, uh, both of them, uh, Tomasini and Sondheim, were going crazy about the performance of Jonathan Bailey in uh, "I'm Not Getting Married Today." Yeah, and uh, so yeah, Sondheim was was pained that we didn't that they didn't have a clip of that, and he was almost he almost was moved to tears just recalling the, the way that this fellow sings, sings that song. So, in any event. Sasanam was skeptical about that, about turning it around from a female point of view, but now he's bought in, and we're all looking forward to that. And he talked about two new productions of West Side Story that are coming. One, they're doing a new film of West Side Story, which is even more amazing, because it already is the greatest movie musical of all time, and now they're going to remake it. Uh, Tony Kushner is apparently behind it. You know, like six months ago, we were just talking about My Fair Lady, and now you're... Your story is changing here. <laughs> I, I know. I think I'm consistent on that. But in any event, I don't have to be consistent. I don't make that kind of money. The point is that uh, they are remaking it with Tony Kushner directing it. And they're doing a new production on Broadway. With even Von Hove is, is directing the play. Uh, and he's the director, by the way, of Network, which we're seeing tomorrow night. Uh, well, I just thought it was funny because I said, really? Every 10 minutes they do another production of West Side Story. Why is that? And what did you say, Dan? It's because it's the greatest musical of all time. <laughs> yeah, so then why didn't they do My Fair Lady every five minutes? Because the West Side Story is the greatest musical of all time. Uh, but in any event, moving on. It, that was a great, it really was a great evening, uh, listening to Sondheim. Uh, and Gosh, I, I love Sondheim. I feel like I met him late in life. What was I doing well, all those just years? For those who listen, well, I don't, now you're exaggerating. But the truth is, when we first met, I was a Sondheim enthusiast, and you were skeptical. Fair? Very skeptical. Of me and Sondheim. Yes. And, and I, at least you've been one over in one way on <laughs> Sondheim. Uh, so we saw last night uh, a movie. It's nonstop uh, entertainment here. And we saw The Favorite. And when I say we, now I'm including Sadie in that group. And uh, The Favorite, uh, some of you may know, is a recently released film uh, about Queen Anne, who was the Queen of England in the early 1700s, an intrigue in court. Uh, and the stars are Olivia Coleman, Rachel Weisz, and Emma Stone. And it's directed by a man named Yorgos Alanthimos, who directed The Lobster. Um, and it's somewhat controversial in that some people really like it, and some people uh, kind of don't. So uh, what's your take on that, guys? I am hoping that Mary Queen of Scots is better. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that tells you something. <laughs> Uh, and I know you're skeptical too, Deb. Well, I, you know, I'd like to say I was lukewarm uh, about it. Yeah. I yeah. just think, you know, I consider myself an expert on period pieces because I pretty much see every single one that comes out. And there are some very conceptual period pieces that do a lot of crazy stuff. And then there are very straightforward ones. And this one kind of walked the line between the two. And I wish it just picked a side. I, it was kind of conceptual sometimes. I and other times it was trying to be more historical and well, straightforward. A, a foot in each. Yeah, I, 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 just, yeah. I just wanted it See, to pick I a think, side. I think you put your finger on it. I think that is the problem. First, let me let me frame what I <coughs> why, why we have a problem. Every once in a while you get a movie. Uh, and let's look at Rotten Tomatoes. Rotten Tomatoes. 
the critics are 94% positive. Uh, the rest of the world is 52% positive, which is uh, fresh versus uh, not so fresh, which is awful, frankly. And uh, why the big disparity? Something's going on here. And I do think that is exactly it. That the people who are enthused about it, and maybe those who are critics who see a zillion movies, are tuned in to what they see as the fascinating aspects of it, the interesting wrinkles of it. Uh, and we reminded us, we just talked to Zeke on the telephone, uh, our youngest, and he liked the movie, but he was kind of plugged in. He said, well, this is interesting, uh, the way they flipped it around. The main players in court are the uh, women rather than the men. The men are the objectified characters. Uh, it's kind of an interesting back and forth. And we, we went on in that way. And in isolation, I think we found ourselves agreeing to Zeke that, the, that there are interesting aspects of the movie that align with what he's saying but the movie, and I agree with the two of you, doesn't work as a whole because it, it never really establishes a clear tone. It never, it, it's something kind of supposed to be serious in terms of serious intrigue in court with real consequences for the country. And the next moment, it, it bounces to things that are really absurd or anachronistic. And it seems odd, like it's the wrong sense of humor and the wrong sensibility. And it's kind of jarring and, and it kind of it lost me. But, well, I thought Zeke made a good uh, point in that some of the anachronistic moments, he thought, uh, were meant to give you an insight into the context of the period, mm-hmm. okay? That uh, seeing things, seeing a period piece in its period yeah. doesn't let you really, doesn't let you in. You're just looking at it from a distance, yeah. from arm's length. And by invoking, you know, putting in a dialogue that was more contemporary, putting in some breakdancing, basically, um, into the ballroom scenes, kind of uh, was supposed to bring it yeah, uh, yeah, more no, into you're our right. You're right. There arena. was something to that. Um, I mean... So, what were you going to say, Sadie? Yeah. Um, I thought the other weird aspect was this, apart from the inact inaccuracies of that they did some interesting camera work which i also thought was a little random like every once in a while they do a fish eye or something like that but i think in general i go to that type of a movie for the spectacle and there was no spectacle, a little there, spectacle. There was i a little... thought the costumes were not good i thought the scenery was not good hmm. i was not impressed if they hmm. win anything in the oscars for costume design i'll be pissed off well <laughs> Right. Well, Eva, you also made an interesting point that the women are all basically in, in monochromatic. Yeah, they're all wearing black, black and, and white. And it's the men who are the people. Well, that was no... Which no, is another thing of, like, there have been movies where they're very straightforward about, like, all the women are going to do, like, variations on the very same thing. Where they kind of did it in this movie, but not quite. You know, like, there are some movies that, like, ever, like there's a clear costume direction. And then there are other movies where, you know, everyone's got their own dress and it's normal and whatever. And this was kind of like everyone's wearing the same sort of pattern. Like it looked like everything was from the same fashion line, but they weren't similar enough to really be a strong theme. Well, they took look what whatever happened costume wise wasn't by accident, right? And they took a lot of care with the settings and the costumes. They wanted to do Which it the way they did. Which is unfortunate because I don't think they did it well. Uh, that, that, that <laughs> I think be. they, they have asked it. Yeah, that could be. But see, let me to bring it down to a more conventional way. The movie. Where it really lacked for me, there are many ways to solve a puzzle how to make an effective movie. One way this kind of movie works for me is if I'm drawn in to the uh, the actual tension 
ramifications, implications of the situation. In other words, if I cared, if I found myself drawn into what's England going to do... Well, there's also no likable characters. Well, but forget likable characters for the moment. Just historically. If I'm sitting there and saying to myself, there's a critical decision to be made, and this is historically, these were the stakes, apparently. That, you know, how England is going to act with respect to France? Is it going to invest more into war? Is it going to war generally? Is it going to look for peace or not? And perhaps the thing that some people find important about the whole story uh, is... That these, uh, you know, the what was going on, these antics that were going on in the court had effects and implications with respect to the whole continent as a whole. But because the way the movie is set up, and because it never establishes a tone, you're never really drawn into the stakes of that. I don't but know. Did, this did you is, care about well, that? It, but did this at all uh, remind you of Death of Stalin? Yeah, a little bit, and it, it, a little bit. And a matter of fact, that's interesting thing you say that because I just read a best movie list recently in which uh, the two of the movies on this person's list were the favorite and death of Stalin. I mean, it, it, because it's it just jarring going back and forth. And if you, for me, if I can't grip onto what's really the reality of what's happening, which draws you in and the, and the importance of the real events, then the, the kind of antics at court just seems to be floating up there. It's unmoored and therefore it's not important to me. It doesn't I, me. I really just think it was trying to do too much because there are a lot of good movies, a lot of good period pieces that really thrive on the whole sexual politics side of it, and they do that well. And then there are other good pieces that do the historical piece of it really well. Um, there are others that do the real conceptual thing really well and others that are really accurate. But I think it was just trying to do a little bit of everything. And I didn't get enough of anything. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I mean, when I think of movies historically that drew me in, and not that I'm such a strong history buff, but uh, Man for All Seasons, Lion in Winter. I mean, the characters, whether it be uh, Catherine Hepburn or, or, or whoever in those movies, you saw them as human beings. And sometimes they were funny. So there were odd things going on. But you were very much, very much at, on the edge of your seat with what was going on with respect to the world, life as a whole and the country but as a whole. But there's a conscious effort to uh, create a sense of the absurd here. There is. And it just, and, uh, that's what I'm, I'm not, not... But like if you compare it to Marie Antoinette, that's way more absurd, you know? And did that work for you? You like that? Well, that's what it was. Then that's what they were trying to do. You I mean, mean the Sophia movie. Coppola? Yeah. yeah, the one with Kirsten Dunst. Well, I didn't see that. Did or you? you could go in the direction of Anna Karenina, which is very um, conceptual. With It worked as kind of a, a play within a movie, and it was well, trying to draw on different... I think all we've confirmed is that, depending on who you are, <laughs> you could have a very different view of this movie. And I think the three of us were not enthusiastic about the film. Uh, and Zeke and a lot of critics were. Uh, so it's hard to recommend it. But I, just, but, uh, I don't know. The comments that like I've it. heard of, like, Zeke was saying that he thought the sexual piece of it was really interesting. There are other movies like The Duchess, for example, or um, The Tulip, Tulip Fever, things like that, that do that to the umpteenth effect. Like, I feel like those the people that make comments like that haven't seen enough period pieces because there, there are so many other period pieces that do it so much better. You, yes, okay. So you were saying that the, the kind of things that they were shooting at here could be done in a more effective way, in a, in a way that's more engaging. I'm saying it, it has been done in a more effective okay. way, and these people just haven't seen enough of those movies. These people, meaning <laughs> these younger people, brother, yes. meaning Zeke. All right, Zeke, we're talking about you. All right, so we also found ourselves, as it is the holidays, uh, talking about uh, holiday movies generally. And, and one reason is, because there have been, maybe it's every year, but it seems more this year, a lot of articles in the Times and in the Journal 
about holiday movies with different themes. Uh, you know, what's a good holiday movie? What's bad? What counts as a holiday movie? Are holiday movies religious? Are they not religious? And, Which ones are working? You know, what's making money? Yeah. So and, and so, uh, it's it's almost not worth recounting on an article article basis. There have been so many articles, but I think uh, our own take is or at least my own take, and you guys can correct me, is, is one way to think about holiday movies. I put them into three categories. Is one is there are holiday movies that they take place around the holidays, and they're sort of rom-coms. They're advancing the romantic situation. Well, let's put uh, let's make it be a little more clear. The Hallmark movies. Yeah, are you talking about made-for-TV movies specifically? Uh, oh, hold on. I, I'm, talking, I'm thinking of movies, but I'll go to, I think the Hallmark guys have gotten there, but just to frame it from a movie perspective, all right? I put Christmas in Connecticut in that category, which is a great movie, which means I'm not putting... No, I think attention. there are two different categories you're talking about here. You right. can't put them in the same category. There's on, made listen. for TV, and I, I then understand. there's I, I, regular I'm, I'm doing movies. movies first, then we'll do made for TV. So in movies, because yes. that's what I know, and I, you, you know the other. So movies is Christmas in Connecticut. Love Actually, I put in that category. I think you'd agree with me, right? Mm-hmm. And you're enthused about that movie, right? The, the Shop Around the Corner, I think, fits in that category. And also the musicals, White Christmas and Holiday Inn are in that category. So the, it, to me, those are really good movies. But and, and as you say... Holiday Inn is not a rom-com. All right. It's, it just seems to me like a... Um, just a musical... Uh, is it, You know, what, what would you call it? It's like a, a series. Uh, you know, it's just a bunch of performances. Oh, okay. A review. together. Almost. A review. Right. Okay. Yeah, exactly. All right. All right, and but, I feel that way about White Christmas, too. All right. It's just kind of a, an excuse to have a review. That could be. That could be. And but, that these rom-coms kind of right, grow stick, out of that. I'll stick with the non-musicals then. I think they make my point. Well, but, then there's but, like the holiday, family stone, things like that that are a little more modern. Okay. Uh, yes. I No one would accuse me of being modern. But so, And you were going to tell us that there is now this entire genre that Netflix and Hallmark have taken over. First of all, I would like to address the fact that you said Netflix before Hallmark. That should never be done. <laughs> it's a genre that Hallmark established and Netflix has glommed onto in the last couple of years. Okay, fair enough. And they have they their movies are very much so a copycat of what Hallmark has done for many many years, and it's um, it is very clear through those movies that they are just trying to copy what Hallmark is doing. Now, do they do? Are there like a zillion of them, one after the other? So on Hallmark, for Hallmark, they first of all, Hallmark produces movies for TV all year round. Right. But they have they, movies and... for Valentine's Day. They have movies for the harvest and the fall. They have summer movies. The harvest? Yeah, they, that's their harvest season. <laughs> okay. There's, there's movies in June. It's all about weddings. So right. they have like different... Um, genres for each They're on the time ball. of the There's year. There's no question. Yeah. Listen, they and know do what they they're replay doing. them each year, or is it all, all brand new ones? Each year, or? they replay them like every day. But, but and plus they no, make but new I ones. mean, but are there classics? Are there ones you yes. know? Yeah, there are classics, and a lot of it has to do with the people that are in them. I think that's one of the big differences between Netflix and Hallmark. Is Hallmark will have a lot more recognizable people in them than Netflix does. Netflix has a lot of um, unknown actors, whereas Hallmark will have a lot of unknown names. They'll have unknown actors, but then they'll also have those kind of like Lori Laughlin, who was um, on uh, whatchamacallit, Full House back in the day. And they have a couple other Full House actors. Mm -hmm. And they have a bunch of people, like the guy who does State Farm ads, he's in Hallmark movies. Like, kind of like B list or C list actors who are very recognizable. Do they play a, a character? 
that is in other movies during the year? Like, you know, will the... The characters um, are not will, consistent. Will they reappear in uh, a Valentine's movie or... Typically, every once in a while, they'll have a series of a movie that goes through two or three, like... In a particular have, It'll have sequels or, or whatever. Yeah. But most of, for the most part, all the, the movies are standalones. Okay. Um, but yeah, I think Hallmark does it way better than Netflix does. Um, and the nice thing about the movies is there's a very consistent plot, and it's the same exact plot every time. It's always... A, a man or a woman, mostly a woman, who lives in a big city, and somehow their work brings them to a small town. Like, they're working for some, like, consulting company, or they're working for a big um, company that just bought the small town diner, and now they have to flip the diner right, right, to right. to um, abide by the company standards. So this woman moves to a small town, and oftentimes it's very close to where they grew up, or very similar to where they grew up and they have their boyfriend back in the big city who's like on the verge of proposing but now she's learning this like new slower paced life and she meets this (laughs) this handyman guy who (laughs) strikes her fancy and she realizes without any cheating there's no cheating that happens in hallmark movies there's no cheating and there's really no divorces if anyone mm-hmm. is not with their significant others, no... it's a widow situation. There are very few divorces in Hallmark okay. movies. No sexual hygiene. Yes. There's no sex, period. <laughs> sex is not happening. And then throughout the course of the, the movie, she um, feels that her boyfriend, her big city boyfriend is out of touch and she breaks it off with him and realizes this guy is her true love. And you always enjoy these, even though you know exactly what's happening. I mean, it's like the romance novels, I guess. Uh, Yes. Um, (laughs) It's because it's very, it's like, you know, like little kids watch TV shows over and over again, the same episodes. It's kind of like that. You know what you're going to get. You know, it's going to be good. Um, Happy ending. You look for the product placement. There are always going to be some Hallmark cards throughout the movie. They have <laughs> they have a specific brand of fake Christmas trees that they promote, so you'll see the fake Christmas trees throughout the movie. Um, and it's something that you do like while you're writing your Christmas cards, or like while you're you know shopping Making online the for stuff. Yeah. yeah, it's not something you do. You sit down and you watch intently. It's something you do while you multitask. All but right. you're not going to, like, uh, be reminiscing about uh, particular episodes or movies Well, I will 20 say, years from now. No, not 20 years from now, but it's a good conversation starter. I was driving um, with a friend from work to, we were having, like, a holiday dinner with a group from work. And on the way there, we were talking about the different Hallmark movies. And she was like, oh, did you see the one where this happens? I was like, oh, yeah, I did see that one. And did you see the one with this guy from that show? And like, oh, yeah, I saw that one. So it's a good um, conversation starter. All right. Well, it's, uh, yeah. So it's an important part of your holiday tradition. Well, yeah. well, okay. there, the article in the Times that sort of got me interested in this was uh, called Hallmark v. Netflix. And what's, what they did was, and I showed this to you, but you've already covered the subject. We don't have to talk about it more. But they actually identified all these Netflix movies and said, and here is the analog and homework that they copied, basically. Yeah. They copied this like, movie, they copied that movie. They must have movie. had someone who used to work at Hallmark and now oh, works sure. at Netflix and is trying to recreate the whole well, thing. Well, you know what? Something or, or else somebody's uh, sister just told them how the movies work. Yeah. You know something? I, <laughs> Hallmark may have its own production staff, but I will tell you this, David. The way a lot of the television business works is there are a lot of independent producers, a lot of them. 
and they put their work out for bidding all the time. So it's easy for someone who's in a competitive network to say, that's a show that normally goes to Hallmark, but we're going to outbid them and get it for Netflix. So that could be going on too. Yeah, but I would say they're very similar in concept, but you can tell by look and feel which is a Netflix and which is Hallmark. All right. So that's the, I think we've covered the rom-com area. The second area... Of uh, the three the categories, at least I described, it was uh, what I'll call sort of very family-oriented Christmas movies. We talked about how the Christmas season affects the family, and I put in that category uh, "Meet Me in St. Louis," which I know is one of your favorites. Say, um, I put the man who who came to dinner. Uh, I think it's a little stretched, but I think it kind of fits. Um, I put uh, "Christmas Story." Uh, the movie uh, based on the Gene Shepard monologues about the kid in uh, Indiana right. who wants a rifle for Dang. his birthday. And I like how the, that's the one you described to everyone. But the man who came to dinner, no description. Because everybody knows it. Does anybody Obviously. not know it? <laughs> Obviously. Nathan Lane did the play, but uh, it, it's a fantastic movie. Monty uh, Woolley is a star of the, uh, the movie. It's a great movie. You get a chance to see it. And about someone who's a big radio host who uh, visits uh, a friend uh, in a small town and uh, breaks his leg and he gets stuck there. Um, and all the hijinks that ensue. And the other one I put in that category, this is not exclusive, is a movie called Remember the Night, which we've become more aware of in the recent years. That's the one with Fred McMurray uh, and Barbara Stanwyck, in which uh, he's a district attorney. And he ends up uh, somehow being in charge of this woman who's sort of a, a little... A defendant in a criminal trial. Right. And he's in charge of her in, in an odd way that's too hard to describe. And it turns he ends up taking her um, to visit because he's going home in the small town he came from. He's in a city. And he drives out there and she's from a small town too. And it's a very touching story. They stop first at her house and then at his. And you see the contrast in terms of the love of the families and how the Christmas spirit really shows that to be... And, of course, a romance ensues. But uh, in any event, so those can be quite moving and, and uh, they're great where movies. Was, where was Little Women in that list? I said it's not exclusive. I think that Little Women deserves to be in that list. Sure. Do you have anything else that comes to mind? There are probably a lot of movies that fit in that category. I mean, I've always thought that Seven Brides for Seven Brothers was a Christmas movie because there is Christmas in it. All right. But, you know, All different right. strokes for different folks. All right. Well, look, I do think that those, but those are Christmas movies in my mind, but of a t- particular type. But the final category, the one which I guess in the mind of the Wall Street Journal is a little bit controversial, are movies that you might call spiritual or religious, depending on what term you want to use. And that's where it gets dicey, because <clears throat> the Wall Street Journal has rules about this, it turns out. Now, the easy call, in my mind... No, the Wall Street... Is, they're wrong. Wall Street Journal... Yeah. Terry Teachout, who wrote the article, yeah. has rules about Okay, it. all right. I won't say the okay. whole journal. But Terry Teachout's their movie reviewer, so he's, he's got a big job there. But yeah, he has rules. But before we get to his rules, there's a movie he didn't mention, which is The Bishop's Wife, which to me is overtly religious. I think we can agree on that. But it's a, And well, it's a very actually, good movie. he mentions that. Oh, did he? he? Said, I remember. Yeah, what does he, he say? Says, um, he says it's not, uh, it's not actually religious. It's what? sort. It's religious, but it's really, when you get down to it, Kind of a rom-com. Yes. Okay. Well, we should say what it is first. So it's a movie, which is, number one, a great movie. Uh, and it starts with, with Loretta Young and, and Cary Grant and David Niven. Yeah. And, and the story is that, in fact, uh, David Niven, who, who is the bishop, uh, is married to Loretta Young. And they're having some problems because the bishop is overcome with the difficulties of raising the money he needs to build a larger and greater church. And he ends up praying for some help 
for them divine help, and it comes in the form of an angel named Cary Grant, or whatever character they... <laughs> and who doesn't he's... love having Cary Grant well, come to visit? David Divin, David Divin. <laughs> <laughs> to answer that question. And, uh, and it's... David, Cary Grant's great. I mean, David Niven is as smooth and suave as they come, except for one person, and that is Cary Grant. And Cary Grant comes to town, and uh, Loretta Young can't help but notice. So uh, it, it's a funny love triangle, if you will. If competing with an angel is the idea then of a love triangle. And there was a remake... Right. Uh, called The Preacher's Wife. With? Denzel Washington. Yes. And Whitney Houston, right? Whitney Houston. Whitney. Yeah. Yes, Denzel Washington, Whitney Houston. But here's the question. Who directed the remake? I have no Tyler idea. Tyler Perry. No. Just kidding. No. Um, Laverne. Laverne and Shirley. The lady that just passed away. That's right. It will come to you. Penny. There's- Yes, Marshall. Penny, Penny Marshall. Marshall. Penny Marshall directed the remake. She did not re- uh, direct many movies, but she directed that, and that's a good movie too. Did not it is good. Movie. She directed. Uh... Now, you know something? If you look at it, she actually only directed a handful of movies. She, she directed big. I know that. I know she that. Like of their own. Of their own. I know that, but Awakening. I think she directed five or six movies, but and they were all huge. Uh, they, were, they were successful movies. I'm not diminishing her. I'm just saying that she had a limited career. But in any event. Uh, she, she didn't direct The Lobster, but no, she you call being Laverne from Laverne and Shirley and, and directing League of Their Own a limited <laughs> career? <laughs> okay. That's unreal. Uh, so, <laughs> the event, my point is to get back to this, it, it's hard to imagine not calling that a religious movie, but... It, and, and he says it's not because it's a little bit of a rom-com? Well, that's too bad. But uh, he, he but gets... A, you know what? Here's my problem with all that. Okay. Well, let me get to right. stating his premise. Then I want to hear your problem with it because I'm probably <laughs> going to agree with you. But his premise is that he actually, him in a religious movie is one about Jesus Christ, actually. Yeah, uh, I was say, and like, about prayer. Aside from like Jesus Christ superstar, what is a, a religious yeah, movie? Yeah, I mean, for? yeah. And so your point is, is... Well, what are his other religious movies? So then let's put that, that in mind. Well, concept. he mentions this, this one about the, the, the three men in the West, right, that you were talking about. Three godfathers? The three godfathers, right. Okay. Yes, with John Wayne right. and Harry Carey Jr. Right. And who else was in Oh, it? I don't know. But the, 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 um, And uh, then there's also It's a Wonderful Life. No, but he doesn't consider that a religious movie. That's the problem. So he, he is so narrow. So then what he, category does it fall into? Okay. Is that the family? Uh, one? Uh, let, me, let me tell you. This is, we get into Terry T. Shot. I think he's off. I think he's wrong, okay? Uh, the one you of, think It's a Wonderful Life's a religious movie? I don't think it's no. religious. Uh, let me back off, okay? I don't, see, here's the difficulty for me. I don't think religious is the right word to think about here. I think spiritual is a good word, all right? Okay, so here's, here's what Terry T. Shot talks about. He says there's something called the social gospel. This is literally what he says in the article. And he says it's a Protestant value thing. That uh, the social, and that's called the social gospel, and that until people uh, become more highly conscious, highly mindful of helping their fellow man and helping the poor and the like, then you're not going to see Jesus coming back. And uh, so Scrooge falls into that? Yes, this is how he comes back. But in his mind, so the social gospel contributes to the notion of helping the poor and helping your fellow man. And in his mind, a movie that's just about that is not a religious movie. Mm-hmm. Okay? So when he talks about the Christmas Carol, A Christmas Carol, which was a great book, obviously, and right there in the center of what we're calling the social gospel for the moment, all right? He's saying, that's not a religious movie because Scrooge never goes to church. Right. Okay. What about The Grinch Who Stole Christmas? Well, 
uh, it's well, the same that's thing. A, that's the same, same thing. story. Okay. But um, all right. So, the, so that, that's, that's fine. Thing, I agree with that. That's the thing he's making. So, in but his, I don't think the bishop's like, wife is not. Uh, well, my, but then my, why are we even talking about religious movies okay. if nothing falls into the religious I, movie category? Okay. But that, the, the point is, I think part of the point of the whole article is, yeah. and the, the, we talked about this last year too, that Charles Dickens invents Christmas. That's what he says. Uh, he invents Christmas, and a lot of the little traditions we develop uh, and uh, the way we... Uh, um, Comes from Dickens. Yeah, it's all from Dickens yeah, and, and, and his story. And, and this seems to disturb his, Terry Tinchat. And the value of Christmas. Right. But I, why it disturbs him, I don't know. I mean, I, I, why should it disturb him? I mean, just... just, the, just Well, one... because, because there's the concept of putting the Christ back in Christmas. That's why it disturbs him. And that, that doesn't even though me. these are noble social, moral values encouraged by um, these various rituals and traditions and the transformations that happen in these stories, uh, none of them right. depend on acknowledging Christ. Okay. So, so here's what I'm going to... Uh, I just it, feel like that's a rabbit hole because then you talk I'm about Santa Claus I'm and all that and Santa Claus is not a religious thing. Look, I, I would put it this way. Forget Santa Claus for just a moment. And let's go to the movie that I think is the central movie at, at issue here. And that's it's a, it's a Wonderful Life. And for those who haven't seen it, It's a Wonderful Life. It's a movie that was made in 1946. And it's a story. Everybody's seen it. What's okay. your point? Okay. My point is this. My point is, to me, that's the ultimate Christmas movie. And the reason that I think, uh, it, well, I use the word ultimate for it, it's not a matter of religious or not. It's a matter, it's a spiritual in the sense that it's a character who steps outside of himself and takes a look at his life and has a transformation as a result. And to me, that makes it spiritual and that makes it a Christmas movie with a capital C. And It's a Wonderful Life, to me, is a great movie. See, and I, it, I think you associate it as the best Christmas movie because it's traditionally the movie that's played directly after the Thanksgiving Day Parade. No, I think no. it's partially you know, it's a marketing any, thing. Do you realize why it's such a, a frequently played Christmas movie? Do you know this, Daniel? Because of the copyright issue. The copyright yeah. runs out. Yeah. Well, so it was free to play on the networks, and everybody played but, 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 it but, 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 but here's how wrong you are, Sade, okay? You know, you grow up with things, and you feel that those were what matter, in particular when it comes to Christmas and holidays. I had never seen or heard of It's a Wonderful Life until I met your mother, all right? So I didn't grow up with it at all, and I had never seen it as a young kid. And when I saw that movie by now in my 20s, all right, I was knocked out by that movie, okay? that movie, I said, how could I not have seen this movie? This is an amazing film, and I still am. And the reason, and we discussed this before... It's, if it was saccharine and treacly and stuff like that, you wouldn't get anything out of that movie. It wouldn't mean anything. It wouldn't resonate. But there are dark moments in that movie. And Jimmy Stewart in that movie goes through dark times and has doubts and has sufferings. And he conveys it in an extremely moving, powerful way. And to me, forget what we call religious or not, that really hits home. That, to me, is a great movie. All right. You agree? We've all had a Jimmy Stewart phase. I'm glad that you had yours in your 20s. Mine was at about let's, let's, 11, 12. <laughs> All right. So we, just remember that Jimmy went to uh, Princeton. Oh, that's important. So uh, Gotta love a Princeton man. Now, we're kind of running out of time. All right. Here, so, so we're so, running out of time. Let's just say this. There was an article that we could talk about in the future. But in any event, it's about um, 
holiday music and there was it's interesting the times because it had some people who were usual suspects number one being michael buble in his own words now known as christmas boy because of all the holiday songs he has and he doesn't really have that many if you compare him to other people though. well he thinks he does i mean he's no johnny mercer uh so in any event uh they did have a uh uh they asked certain people who are well-known stars what they recommend and the interesting one and the song we're going to leave you with is recommended by Linda Ronstadt. And Linda Ronstadt recommends a song called Star of Wonder by the Roaches. And Tams and I have been fans of the Roaches many years ago. And it's a, it's a lovely song. So we'll leave you with that. And with all of our own personal Christmas memories and traditions, including fondue tonight. That's the way we do it. And uh, so uh, thank you, Sadie, for being here. For the special holiday edition, this is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper. See ya. Bye-bye. Next year. Yeah, <laughs> next year. Star of wonder in the Should I follow you?